So sitting here in silence, it's hard to imagine that one can say anything that would be an improvement on the quiet. It's uh, delicious after a day and activity and stillness just to let things settle. And yet, uh, perhaps I can offer some words of uh, encouragement that may be useful. So, with that spirit of uh, intention, I, I will try. I was born in California and lived in uh, the States for the first 17 years of my life. Los Angeles area until I went to Santa Cruz where I studied at a university and then in 1987 I left and went on a pilgrimage to India and Asia Thailand and and then came back to the United States to say hello and goodbye to my family before I went to England so I went to Amravati Buddhist Monastery and um, asked if I could take the novice precepts and began the training as a as a novice and so pretty much since 1987 I haven't been living in the United States but I've been coming back every uh, year every few years visit family and teaching so next well this is a, a few years now yeah so most of these last, uh, well, over 20 years I've been living in England with a period of time when I was living uh, no real fixed place. I spent quite a bit of time in Australia. And, you know, America, United States is my homeland. This is where I grew up. And so I am familiar with uh, certain kinds of culture and belief systems and values. I grew up with them, and I can see around me it playing out or expressing itself and every time I come back to the United States it's always a surprise to me um, some of the things that I find you know how big the streets are and, and, and how big the houses are and, and, and a sense of, of material resource that's unusual so I I don't have the degree of, of a familiarity with this kind of uh, material comfort in some of the other places where I've lived. And it just reminds me that, you know, within our constitution, we have, uh, it's given that we have the right to pursue, you know, health, happiness, and freedom. And we take our constitutional rights very seriously. And yet each of us has a different understanding of what that means and how we are meant to be doing that and what those rights actually entitle us to. And so, you know, when we consider the right to health, uh, and we look around and, and, and see that, well, there is still quite a lot of illness. And, and we see that there's a lot of people in this country who don't have access to even a, a modicum of health care. Uh, because the 
costs are prohibitive and the insurance are exorbitant. And, and so uh, it's not, uh, not always possible even to have basic health care. And when we look at happiness, you know, for many people, there's a, a deeply inbuilt kind of conviction in the American dream that the more we have, the better off we are. You know, the bigger things are, the better it is. And the, the kind of um, greater um, status that we have, or the more power we have access to, the more capacity that we have to get what we want and get rid of what we don't want, that therein lies our happiness. And this, this American dream is plastered on billboards and um, visible in, in, in many ways. It, and it's visible and also in the ways in which we believe it. The sense that our happiness is dependent on getting the things that we want and getting rid of the things that we don't want. And, you know, maybe just for a moment it might be worthwhile just taking a pause and considering, is that actually the way you think or believe? And if it's not, what do you think and believe? And if you feel completely comfortable with things just as they are, then how does that square up with the stuff where one is struggling? Is the stuff where one's struggling a struggle because one's happy with it the way it is? So there's a cultural belief system, and this cultural belief system is widespread. And yet, in terms of our Dhamma practice, in terms of our inquiry, in terms of our interest in waking up, it's worthwhile looking at. You know, does this actually bring happiness? So many of us enjoy a certain privilege of having a lot of ability to make choices about the way we live. And we can see in those choices there's a certain amount of happiness that does come. And we have choices about not being in situations which are harmful or toxic or uh, destructive. And we can also see that having choices like that uh, has a result, and those results bring a release from suffering, an absence of suffering, an absence of dis-ease and disharmony. And so there's certainly a, a way in which this sense of getting what one wants and getting rid of what one doesn't want has value. And we take that uh, to heart, and we make, uh, for many of us, we use it to great advantage. But there's also places where this whole principle kind of breaks apart and falls, falls down, breaks down. And, and, uh, and then we need to look and see whether the value that is working in one particular area is applying in another area. So when we come back to the um, basic sense of you know, what it is to be healthy, we can have a certain choice in the things that we do, the way that we exercise, the way that we eat, the foods that we eat. And yet, for many people, there's all kinds of health problems that happen 
independent of the choices that we're able to make. And when we feel that it's our right to be healthy and when we feel that um, we uh, want to get rid of things that are um, unpleasant, then one of the correlates of that is sometimes we feel guilty or ashamed or bad if something like our health goes wrong and we are not in the position to make it better. So the, the things that we know, the, the medicines that we have access to, the doctors that we can find, the uh, attitudes that we can cultivate, the meditation techniques that we can develop, uh, they don't fix it. They don't make it go away. And so because we've taken to heart this value system that you know happiness is about getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, then there's a, a kind of shadow sense of being a failure if somehow we're not able to do that. And, and then that sense of being a failure can sometimes shadow us into all kinds of aspects of our life. So these are just interesting trends or mind states, interesting to watch and see how they follow us and, and take us into different parts of our lives and how confronted with situations like health or unwellness, we relate to them. So I thought this evening it might be worthwhile just to talk about happiness and health and the pursuit of freedom from the perspective of simplicity, renunciation, and love. So most of the time in this culture, we're not oriented towards simplicity. We're oriented towards complexity. The more, the better, the bigger, the better, the fancier the widget, the faster the widget, the, I don't know, the... The, the more we can communicate, the more we can do our emails, the more internet, the more communication, the more, the more, the more, the more, the more, the more, the more. But the more, the more, the more, the more, the more sometimes means that the body is going faster, the mind is more activated, there's less stillness, there's less responsiveness, there's less capacity to feel what's actually happening in our physical bodies, and sometimes less capacity to feel what's happening in our relationships with each other. And so more ends up making less. So when we have a, a value that less is better, it doesn't mean that we have to take all of our widgets and throw them out the window, and nor does it mean that we need to shave our hair or dressed in robes, and doesn't mean that we need to go to monasteries. But it can mean that there's an appreciation for simple things in life. To have enough clothes, to feel warm on a cool day where the wind blows. To appreciate having a glass of water that soothes one's thirst. To begin to tune in to the colors of the day or the sounds of the birds. Or to even know that you have eagles that fly in your city. You know, isn't that extraordinary? Or to see the colors of the azalea bushes and the, and the cherry trees as they're blossoming. And so it's, it's not about possession or ownership. It's about 
presence and appreciation where one is more and more able to respond to what's happening in the present moment with a sense of willingness to wake up to the simple joys that are all around us. I spent some time in India over the winter time. I love India. I feel very much at home in India. But India is, has chaos coefficient to the max, you know? And, you know, you can't go to an electric socket and turn on a switch and expect that it'll work. I mean, you can expect, but a lot of the times you'll be very disappointed, you know. You know, or just simple things like a door that works or a bus that goes or a telephone call that you can make or a communication that is effective. And, and yet, in this culture, all of these things are just taken for granted, you know. The electricity works and people don't ever think about it. The light switch works and we don't even pay attention to the fact that we had light that we can switch off. So what is it then that allows our attention to wake up to the stuff that's around, which is quite wonderful? and not habituate ourselves to the kind of volume and intensity and complexity to the extent where we miss it. It just goes by like a blur and we're not touching any of it and none of it's able to nourish us. We don't feel the, the cool of the breeze and feel the freshness of the air. We don't notice the birds. We don't feel our bodies, both in the sense of the, the way in which they are responsive and, and expressive, the way in which their achingness can be indicative of, of places where we're needing more balance. So what is it then that allows attention to turn from outward and fast to inward? and present and still. How do we get there? What switch can we find to do that? that I actually have an answer to that question. You know, I think each of us needs to find our own answer to that question. I know for myself that the more suffering I have experienced, then oftentimes that's a gateway or a porthole for being able to appreciate very simple things. Anyone who's experienced profound lack of health can then, for a period of time, appreciate what it is to be able to walk and to eat, to go to the toilet, to think, in a way where the whole thing isn't just an agonizing struggle. And so absence, then, is sometimes a catalyst for appreciating things when they're present. But is it necessary that we need to suffer intensely in order to appreciate the fact that our bodies can walk, we can sit, 
who can talk. I don't know. But I certainly do know that the more that I am able to allow attention to come into the present moment and be responsive to the simple things around me, then the greater sense of ease and well-being and contentment I walk with in the course of my day. And that ease and well-being and contentment then feeds and nourishes and supports a greater capacity to deal with the challenges and the complexities that are inevitable in our life. So people have this fantasy, I would say it is a fantasy, that in a monastery everything is peaceful. And I would welcome everyone to come to the monastery and stay for a period of time. (laughs) And to see for yourself. There's an enormous peacefulness that is present in a monastery. Enormous peacefulness. And we live in exquisitely beautiful places. But any time you have more than one human being living in a place, you naturally have a range of complexity that you have to deal with. And that comes with territory of being a human being. So there's a certain kind of joy that comes in being able to see just the movement of the colors of the day and tune into the simplicity of nature that's present and to catch touch the, the blossoms as they're emerging in the springtime and the birds as they're coming out of their nests. And in order to do that, there needs to be some degree of collectedness that our attention is not fragmented and caught up with activity or thought or planning, worry. We're not overwhelmed with disturbing emotions in order just to be still and present with just the color green on the leaves of a tree or the beautiful burgundy of some of these maple leaves as they're emerging. And so collectedness is one of the things which is supportive of simplicity. Being able to be still and present with what is here right now and feel the the fullness of that, the well-being that comes from that. The cool of the water, the quenching of one's thirst, the warmth of one's clothing, the support of the chair. One needs to have some capacity to attend to these simple things. Now, renunciation is not one of the most favorite words in this culture. In fact, it has probably a lot of associations of fear connected to it. Because renouncing goes against the grain of having more. And yet, there's a freedom in living with less and feeling comfortable and at ease and living with less. Because when one is at ease and living with less, then one doesn't feel so much fear. Now, our lifestyle as alms mendicants is designed to put this 
whole relationship to the test. We don't handle money. We're not allowed to store our own food. And everything that we own is offered to us. And so we are putting ourselves in a position which for most people in this country would be the absolute worst nightmare you can imagine. Because we are placing our most basic needs outside of our control. And for most people, that's bad news. People spend their whole lives organizing themselves so that they do not ever have to experience that their basic needs are out of their control. So it's another alternative of a lifestyle. And some people think, well, well, why on earth would you do that? Why? Deliberately put yourself in a position where you're not in control of your own basic needs. And it's a valid question, and oftentimes we ask that ourselves. I certainly do. And when I was going to India recently, it was another layer of challenge with that. Our monasteries are well organized, and it does happen that we, our needs are met. The food is offered every day. I do have enough things to wear. The places that we live have heating. We don't suffer in that kind of a way. But when I was planning on going to India this trip, it was working out that I didn't have somebody to go with me. But I had an intuitive feeling that I wanted to go. So I thought, okay, I want to go, and I don't have somebody to go with me. And I contacted a place where I wanted to stay, and they said that there wasn't room for me to stay there. So I didn't have a place to stay. And the person that I knew in the area wasn't going to be there, so there was nobody going to pick me up at the airport. So there was nothing in place. Now, when you don't have money, you can't handle money, you can't leave the airport and put 50 rupees in the bus and go to the next place. You don't have the capacity to do that. So the vulnerability is heightened. And the control mechanisms and the strategies to try and organize it so that we don't need to experience this degree of vulnerability also can be very heightened. So when I was making this little plan to go to India, I could see the kind of agitation and the strategies and the kind of working out how I would manage to do this so that it would work. And there was something in me that just kept on saying trust, not, not in a reckless way, but trust, trust that there is some goodness that will emerge, that will support you. Now, I find that degree of vulnerability scary. Going to India without having anybody there to support me, without having any capacity to take care of any of my needs, it's scary. And yet there was something that was encouraging me to even stretch more than I normally do in the monastery. And trust. Trust what? What am I trusting? I'm not trusting a person. There wasn't anybody there. What was I trusting? There was some trust that intuitively I would be okay. What's that? Where does that come from? How do I have access to that? How do I know? It's a feeling response. So the indications were that it was an important thing for me to go to India. 
Nothing was working out immediately that was obviously going to support. And there kept on being this sense of, well, you'll be okay anyway. You don't have to control it all yourself. You don't have to do it all yourself. Trust. All right. So I relaxed enough to allow the whole thing to unfold. And I booked my tickets without knowing and allowed attention to rest in the not knowing rather than in the fear. Okay? So rather than solidify around the fear and all of the possible scenarios of the 900,000 million ways that everything could go wrong, I trusted the space of uncertainty without absorbing into thought. And in that space of uncertainty, without absorbing into thought, all kinds of amazing things started to happen that I did not orchestrate. People's plans changed. The place that said that they couldn't have me said that they could have me. Another place said that they could have me. Somebody said that they would call a taxi and have them come pick me up at the airport. So without doing it myself, it all unfolded. Now, this experience of trusting, of renouncing one's investment in control, is not an easy practice. And yet, I personally find it a very worthwhile one, because my own mechanisms for needing control are strong. And even though I've lived this life for many years, there still is this habit pattern that if I don't do it myself, it's not going to happen. It's a deeply ingrained habit. And yet, my experience in this last trip to India is that there's actually other ways of operating in this world which have beneficial results. It ended up being that I had better support on this trip to India than I have ever had any time I have ever traveled. It was quite remarkable. And so it was affirming that if one is able to allow one's attention to rest in the stillness of not knowing, without grasping into thought, that can be a place where things can unfold in a way that you just simply do not expect. So what are we renouncing? In this case, it was renouncing the need to know. It was renouncing the need to be in control. It was renouncing the need to have things certain. It was renouncing the need to feel comfortable, to feel reassured. So renunciation isn't only a materialistic renunciation where we're giving away possessions. But it's a renouncing of the things that we really hold dear and cherish and seeing if there's another way of being in the world that allows something else to emerge. In order to renounce our longing for comfort and our appreciation of having things certain and our wanting to be in control, and one has to renounce the sense of I am. I am 
the one doing this. I am the one feeling this. I am the one orchestrating this. I am. The one that owns and possesses the thoughts and the feelings and the anxieties and the concerns. And one is able to relinquish or renounce the I am. Then from that place it's possible to journey into the stillness. Into the uncertainty. And allow that uncertainty to be a pregnant place through which life emerges. When we're holding on to that I am, then there still is a separation between me and the rest of the universe, and there still is a control that's happening. Can you follow? Can you relate? Last time I went to India, I was in the same place, and I hadn't um, uh, my homework on these practices hadn't gotten to this level yet, and and I was quite um, uh, a little bit frightened about various different things, and I was kind of panic-stricken that that somehow my needs were not going to be taken care of. So there was food that was offered every day, but I was frightened that I wasn't going to get out enough fruit. So there wasn't fruit offered at the time of days that I was eating, so I had this kind of anxiety about not getting enough fruit. So somebody said, do you need anything? And I said, fruit. So they brought me this mountain of fruit. You know, and what am I going to do with a mountain of fruit, you know? And so I realized, what am I doing? This is just fear, you know? I'm collecting fruit because I'm afraid that if I don't ask for it, something terrible is going to happen. I'm not going to get enough fruit. And then what? What kind of catastrophe will happen if I don't get enough fruit? I don't know. But something bad was going to happen for sure. So I started to give away the fruit that was offered to me. And the faster I gave it away, the more people continued to offer it to me. And I wasn't asking anybody anymore after that to have any fruit. They were just giving it to me spontaneously. And so I still couldn't get rid of all the fruit because it was coming faster than I could give it away. And it was like this giggle, you know, this kind of humorous giggle. That when you begin to start learning your lessons, it starts coming back to you in a faster way. When you let go, it comes back. But if we let go, if I thought, well, I'll give away all my fruit in order so that I can get some every day, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. Renouncing position. So we renounce our... Attitudes are places where we're clinging. And one of the places that we get sometimes a little bit stuck is in our position, in our views. I'm right. How many people feel I'm right is an important thing to hold on to? They're wrong. I'm right and they're wrong. And yet what happens when there's a willingness to enter into the stillness and renounce that position of being right or wrong? A 
I mean, initially there's a struggle because there's a need for some kind of a deep affirmation that there is somebody right, there is somebody wrong, and I'm definitely the one that's right. But when one lets go of that, one moves out of the rub of conflict that comes from that and enters into something else that allows another degree of relationship to emerge. And that other relationship that emerges often characterized by much more affection, capacity to be sensitive to what's happening to the other person, and warmth. So then one needs to look and see, well, what's actually more nourishing? Holding on to the position of being right? Or warmth and affection and sensitivity that's mutually responsive and caring? Last night we were in Olympia and on the back of the car of the friends who were welcoming us there was a a bumper sticker and the bumper sticker said that when the power to love is greater than the love of power there will be peace in this world. I don't know any human being that doesn't respond to kindness and affection. I don't know any living being that doesn't respond to kindness and affection. Any of the scientists are showing that water and stone and air is responding to kindness and affection. All of life is able to respond to kindness and affection, even life that we normally regard as insentient. So what is love? How does one allow love to grow and to flourish? What prevents or occludes love? You know, these are not simple questions, really. And yet each of us seems to somehow flourish when we're in the presence of it. And yet if the presence of it is dependent on what's happening around us, how the people around us are relating, how our family and friends and colleagues are relating, then our capacity to be in connection with love is highly conditional. It's entirely dependent on circumstance. And when things are highly determined on circumstance, they're highly unstable, and the nature of highly unstable things is they're inherently unsatisfactory. 
So it's certainly to our advantage to learn how to work in our relationships in a way where kindness and respect and affection and love are cultivated. And their their opposites are looked at, investigated, and begin to find a way to allow them to come into less and less frequency. But in the same way that we don't have control over our health, we don't have absolute control over the amount of love that's present in the people that are around us. And how much they are loving of us. But we do have the ability to make love a priority and to allow resting in love to be something that we become more and more familiar with. And so rather than require, ask or demand or suggest or hope or wish or long for the world to love me, there can be a willingness to love, no matter what the consequences may be. So what might that look like? I don't experience love as a kind of pink bubblegum goo that one pastes over experience. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a genuine capacity to feel connected with and to embrace what is present. In awareness, in stillness, there's a capacity to embrace what is present. It doesn't judge, it doesn't criticize, it doesn't require things to be different. It's all-inclusive and all-embracing. And when in that awareness there's a willingness to feel close to, then there's a sense of connection in awareness that conveys this quality of love. My own experience is the more that I'm able to be in awareness, resting in love with experience that arises, the more that I'm able to do that with others. In, out, self, other. These dualities cease to have a strong determining factor. And what is much more present is just the quality of presence itself, of love itself. So I haven't found bringing love to myself an easy journey, feeling love within the whole range of my human experience has not been always a picnic. There have been places that have been definitely resistant or feel completely inaccessible to this quality of love and warmth and a sense of shame or a sense of self-recrimination or self-hatred that feels like it's real and absolute in the truth. 
And yet these two come through thought and memory and experience. And they too can be held in awareness in a way that doesn't judge, that doesn't ask them not to be there. And in opening up to the very things that we find the most difficult to accept, we find an ability to rest in something which is greater than the objects of what we are experiencing. Fear comes. What knows fear is not frightened. Anger comes. What knows anger is not angry. Desire comes. What knows desire is not full of desire and clinging and craving. There's a freedom in being able to be with what is without rejecting, without asking it to be otherwise. And that freedom is conveyed not only through the fullness of what it is to be a human being, but in relationship with other friends and families and partners and in community. This capacity of resting in love or resting in awareness that is connected and embodied supports renouncing views and positions and a sense of self. And because it is about being present and being present in the moment, its nature is imbued with appreciating the simple things in life. They flow, they're connected, they support one another. There is a happiness that comes from having enough collectedness of mind to be able to see the simple things. There's a a kind of joy that comes when one is able to feel gladness and appreciation and joy in one's own life and in the gladness, appreciation and joy in other people's lives. And there's a profound sense of happiness that comes when there's a capacity to be with what's arising without expecting it to be otherwise. Knowing that one's happiness is not dependent on the object that one is experiencing, that that is not who one is. Because in that kind of happiness, one is no longer so deeply tethered to these fluctuating conditions which are so deeply out of one's control. And in that happiness, 
the happiness of resting in awareness, of resting in love, there is peace. So we have a life, and in our life we have many choices. What is important to you? How do you want to live your life? What choices do you want to make? What do you want to support and what don't you want to support? They're worthwhile questions considering. So perhaps that's enough for our reflection in this kind of format. And we can uh, change the format and open up questions or have some kind of discussion. Respond to things that are touched by what I've said or other questions about our life. See how things go. That's a very good point, and it's not what I was intending to say, because it's a very different situation for people who are in places of poverty. It's not a question of trusting in order for their poverty situations to change. That's different. So this, this whole, um, this is a reflection for people who are not in, mm, It's not to, it doesn't place blame on a person's situation. Sometimes when a person is able to trust, they can come up with ways through out of their poverty situations that they wouldn't necessarily would have thought of if what they are doing is responding to it out of quite a lot of fear. But I wouldn't feel at all comfortable about saying, um, because I experience the capacity to trust and therefore having my needs met, that somebody who doesn't get their needs met is therefore not trusting enough. That conclusion would not be something that I would want anyone to make from what I just said. Thank you for pointing that out. Please. 
first of all, thank you very much for your remarks, which are very wise and timely for me, so I appreciate them. The dilemma that I'm facing is, is probably not unusual, but it's about longing for simplicity and not knowing how to slow things down. Mm -hmm. um, my mother just died a few weeks ago, and as death always does, it's really made me pause and question how I'm living my life, which is not new, but more than even more to the core. And I find myself wanting to slow down and have more time to be present. But, and, and to get away from the hundreds of cell phone calls, emails, and expectations of are genuine people that I have fed and taken on. And I don't know how to slow it down. And when I think about trying to extricate myself, I worry that I will be letting people down, that I will be going back on my word. I don't know how to do it. And this, you're right about this culture. And, and I'm not the busiest person I know by any means. Um, it is so insidious and so seductive and so hard to pull back. I just, I just, I find myself absolutely not knowing. And I have some trust that if I just stay in that question, maybe that will unfold, but it just feels overwhelming to me to behave responsibly to other people and to be responsible to myself I think this is an important question and I would imagine if we had a go around other people would kind of be interested in this I mean how many people is this a relevant question for right now okay so you can see hands up yeah and it, it might actually be worthwhile at some point for people who ha this is a relevant question to, to group together and to start talking together as a community how this can be uh, brainstormed individually and how a spiritual community can support one another in doing this. I know in the monastery where I'm living, it also is the case that we can get overextended, we can get have too much happening, and we can feel completely overwhelmed both with the level of busyness and activity and also with not wanting to let people down as we're changing our um, activity levels. And so part of that has to do with timing and preparation. So things happen like the death of a parent and all of a sudden something is reflected that illuminates in a way that wasn't clear before. And so one's priorities have changed as well as one's own need to have time to process everything that you've been through. Yeah. And so, I don't know um, answers. I know sometimes what helps is to let people know I've just been through this with my mother dying and it's going to take me some time before I'm up to speed with the normal level of um, communication and duties that I carried before. And I'm just signaling that so that you understand I'm not wanting to abdicate responsibility, but my capacity now is different than it was before. And you can also signal that as I am looking at all of this, there's an interest to 
have less things that one does so that there is more time for just being present without having to fill it up with activity of doing. And then maybe you might have some sense of a time framework that you're working in. So, you know, this whole process of grieving may take six months, but maybe in a year you're interested in slowing things down. So you can signal that there's a process that you're in. You're not quite sure of the results or the outcome, but it is looking like it might be that you will be pulling back and not be engaging so um, directly without any intention to hurt or to harm or not to appreciate, but it's coming from a need to live your life in a way that's congruent with your own values. When the timing is responsive to the level of responsibility, there's less distress. When it's abrupt, then it can be shocking and hard. Yeah. So Ajahn Upeka and I are going to Cloud Mountain on Friday and we're teaching a retreat there. And then after that we are going to the Bay Area and there's a number of meditation groups that we'll be speaking at and in different venues. And then um, as uh, you have alluded to, what's happening is, is that the sisters in England have given uh, agreement for a branch monastery to be established in the United States. So we want to set up a branch monastery where we can train nuns. And uh, part of uh, Ajahnupeka and I being here is uh, teaching and a little bit more contact with various different groups to let people know that this is what's happening. So this agreement was just formalized just before we left. And so we are very much in the process of, of seeing what unfolds. In order for a branch monastery to take root, there needs to be a support. There needs to be a variety of things that happen from the sisters. There needs to be uh, a willingness to have us come. And people who are interested in, in how we're living and feel that what we're doing is worthwhile. Do you want to say more about that? <laughs> I need to pass you this. Yeah. Uh, see, I'm very curious about what's going to happen. You know? So I'm um, just open, listening. And, um, so um, I'm not, uh, I don't know if I will be here myself on that process, but I'm very curious about uh, for us in England, you know, uh, there is a need for us now to have a monastery, really. So it's a very interesting time and very important time. So all of us in England were very excited, the idea that something's happening here. So 
I think the process started, and uh, so we see. Mm. Do you have anything in your order short-term ordinations? Is that Um, the general process is, is that people come to the monastery as lay people and get a feeling for how the community is. And then if they're interested after they've been there for a while to take novice precepts and it's in agreement with the community who's resident, then a, a date for novice precepts will be given. Novice precepts is one lives by the eight precepts and lives according to the community standards and shaves one head and wears white robes. And then after living like that for a year, then there's a kind of review process that takes place. And if both the individual and the community feels that it's helpful to continue, then another year can be offered. If a person feels that continuing with the monastic life and the monastic training is helpful, and after two years of living as a novice, they're interested in going forth into the higher ordination, then that is, is possible. There's a, a variety of things that need to take place to support that. And the commitment that's asked is a five-year commitment. So if a person is only wanting to do that as like an experiment to see how it feels for a year, then that's not encouraged usually. Um, and so after five years, then the person is free to consider if this is working or not working or how they are with it all and then make more choices. But as a novice, you're very much part of the community and you have a definite uh, access to the teachings and you have an access to community life and feedback with the senior members of the community and with one's peers. And so the, the benefit of living in community with teachings, with uh, people who are practicing is absolutely accessible as a novice. So many people ordain for a year because they want to have a feeling of what that would be like and to be a part of a community. And, and many people find that it's very valuable. And whatever other commitments that they have, they bring that back to them. Ajahnupeka was the novice nun at Amravati for many years, has a lot of experience in working with the novices. Um, it, different people have different um, affinities with teaching. Some people don't feel comfortable teaching even though they're very senior. And other people feel comfortable teaching and they may not be that senior. So in the monastery that I'm living, usually a person is not in much of a prominent teaching role until they've been 10 years as, uh, in these robes, which means 12 years in the monastery because there's two years as a novice. I end up doing a lot of traveling, but I am not uh, representative of the group. I probably travel more than many. Yeah. This year I'll be away from the monastery a number of months and uh, teaching and traveling. Different people spend a lot more time in the monastery. 
What is underneath your question? The question was a residual feeling of guilt at not being healthy. One of the um, problems with some of the New Age teachings and misunderstandings of karma is that we feel if we are unhealthy, we've done something wrong. And if our attitudes and our values and our diets and our affirmations and our uh, are the things that are meant to get us healthy, then if we're not healthy, it's because we're not practicing properly. And I've heard people say that, you know, to somebody who's got high blood pressure. Oh, it must be because you're not practicing properly. As if to say that if you were practicing properly, you would have complete control over all of your bodily physiological functions. And it's a fallacy, that. But it's a commonly accepted fallacy. And depending on whether or not we believe that will depend on whether or not we feel a sense of guilt if we're not well. So if we feel that our affirmations and our diet and our meditation practice and our yoga and our tai chi and our stretching and our loving is going to cure us from our physical maladies, then if we don't feel well, we feel that we haven't been doing all of our practices well enough. Has anyone ever experienced those shadows? Yeah? Yeah? So one of the things that I really appreciate about the Theravadan tradition is, is that it's very uncomplicated. Bodies are born and they die. And you haven't done anything wrong to be involved in that process. Okay? seems random as to when what happens Somebody who has more vision in terms of seeing things in terms of cause and effect over periods of a span of lifetimes might be able to see a picture that makes some sense. But for most of us in our lifetime who have a vision of only this lifetime, a lot of the times it doesn't make any sense. You know, it just simply does not make sense. See, people who live extraordinary, virtuous lives committed to waking up, dying at a very young age. It doesn't make any sense.
Would you like to say more about that? asking about how um, the uncertainty of death is, serves for awakening. Urgency. 
And that, that's what uh, is very important. She had the sense of urgency. And to reflect in the monastery in our school, because we have that, to reflect about death, you know, every day, every moment, uh, reflecting about the change of life in each moment. That's very important. So the Asian process, and um, the season, and, and just pay attention to that. And, uh, I don't know if you have any of questions. I mean, it seems to be that, you know, it becomes the bottom line. She's, she's saying that when you understand that death is inevitable, then yeah. you realize that love is the only thing to do. Oh, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Of course, there is no thing else. There is nothing else. Mm -hmm. And that, that is what that presence, what Ajuntal uh, was talking today, it's what we are doing, all of us. That's what, in that presence, in that moment, when we know that, you know, there is nothing else, there is no past that is finished and there is no future because the future can't exist. It's just like this mind, the thought that we are only now. That's the only thing we have is now. And when we open to the now, of course that, that awareness is just love. It's the acceptance. And there is no judgment. There's no expectation. And yes, I, I really love these um, phrases of Isakadatta, uh, you know, saying, and that emptiness, pure emptiness, is wisdom. To accept the creation is love. And my life is between the two or something like that. Because often, you know, when we, we take about pronunciation, you know, like what she spoke very clearly tonight, it's not about that matters thing. It's about our attachment of who we are and what the, moment, the world is. So when we realize that it's all empty, you know, but it doesn't mean we don't respect 
that body. We don't respect the world, we don't appreciate the flower or the star or someone has a gift of singing or you know what I mean or just sharing tonight what we are here now this is the experience of love and taking care of each other mind and body so I'm a little bit tired so I'm not correcting you Maybe it's time slowly to draw things to a close. I just wanted to mention that we brought some um, gifts for, from our monastery in England. There's a couple of publications that are uh, collections of nuns' talks, and there's some CDs which are collections of nuns' talks, and two which are retreats that have been given. And um, there, there is a library that you know about. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be there. You'll have access to them, and you can copy the CDs. Yeah, you're the librarian. Wonderful. Okay. So the um, uh, the nuns in England are excited about the prospects of coming to the states, and uh, Janice is here in Seattle area. And if you're interested in knowing more about this project. She's definitely the person to connect with. Would you like to raise your hand a bit higher? Yeah? Yeah? Um, the name of our foundation is Serrano Loka, and you can just Google us for, I do have a couple of clients with, for those of you that are familiar. And our mission is to support the, the nuns in this tradition, in their teaching, and also uh, to help establish a monastery on the West Coast of North America. So we brought the nuns here to you today. Yes, so thank you for your attention. Yeah. So I appreciate your attention and your interest and your aspiration to wake up. And may we all support each other as this is bearing fruit. <laughs>